0: Alright, it is great to be here with my church family, and it's even better to be here to bring the word. Um, Very happy about that, very excited for that as well, Um, and it is wonderful to see all these beautiful people. So, of course, it is Mother's Day, so I definitely want to offer a hearty and happy happy Mother's Day uh, to everyone here. And... um, Our Mother's Day in the Richardson household started on on a very good note. It was actually uh, a very surprising note. So my brother is back with us, and he surprised us. We had no idea he was coming back. He came with flowers and surprised mom. She's all like, oh, my gosh, like, what is this? What are you doing here? But um, it was was very nice, so I just wanted to give him a little shout-out for that. But... uh, So as um, we had said today, or as Joey had said earlier, we're going to be looking at um, God's provision. And it's going to be a whirlwind tour that we are going to be taking through the scriptures here. We're going to be in the Old Testament. And I I have to say I love the singing and I love um, the idea of worshiping God and, and just opening up our hearts toward him. And what my hope is this morning is that with what we will be looking at, I want it to be an encouragement. Um, to everyone, not just to mothers, but, but to everybody here. And so, in light of that, um, I just had some thoughts that as I was like meditating on, on motherhood and, and those different things. Um, it's just a really special way to show forth the glory of God. Um, even as I think, you know, with my own childhood and, and my mom raising me and, and what mothers do for their children, uh, she's been a huge, monumental influence in my life. Um, even in terms of who I am, you know, as a person, who I am as a man, uh, my spiritual walk. Um, my mom, she spent time with all of us teaching us and encouraging us in the things of the Lord, right? So so mothers, you you have a huge and a powerful sway in your homes and and in that life. And so I want to definitely highlight that, that it really is a sacred duty. Motherhood is, is a sacred duty. It's a very unique way in showing forth the glory of God. Um, And the other thing, of course, I wanted to also acknowledge and address, too, is I definitely know that for for some of us, or for many people, Mother's Day can be a very difficult time as well. Um, The fact is, we live in a fallen world. Like, we all know that, right? So sometimes things don't always work out the ways in which we want. Um, Perhaps you're someone who, you know, has had to endure losing your mother, or maybe you're someone who's had difficulties when it comes to becoming a mother. And these are things I definitely want to acknowledge because I think it's important. Um, One thing that has always resonated with me when it comes to speaking on the word of God is making sure that it's not just information that I'm communicating to you, but that it really goes and sinks deep within your heart. And so I definitely wanna take a moment to recognize um, that fact too, that sometimes Mother's Day can be a, a, a tough period. And with what the Lord laid on my heart to go into here is we're going to be taking a look at, at two mothers. We're going to be taking a look at Hagar and Sarah in the Old Testament, and then we're going to take a look at Israel. And the reason why I did that is because I really like their stories. Their stories aren't perfect. Um, there, there's a lot of mistakes. There, there are moments of sinful decisions or, or reacting the wrong way to things, and I appreciated that. Because in the same way that Mother's Day can be a time of of joy or sometimes a time that can be difficult, I think there's a lot to be said in knowing that God is with us in those times where there are mistakes. He's with us in those times when it is difficult, when it is hard, right? God has a provision for us in the wilderness, and, and that is what we're going to be taking a look at today. So if you could turn to Genesis chapter 16 that is where our story will start. Genesis chapter 16. And so I have two ways in which we're going to be looking at this. And and like I said, it's going to be a whirlwind tour through the scriptures. So the first is looking at how God provides for mothers um, in the way he cared for these two women with their children. But at the same time, as I mentioned before, these two women have a wilderness experience, a wilderness connection in which God provided for them in that wilderness experience. And we see that that is related as well to when Israel was in the wilderness, God's people when they were traveling to the promised land. So this is really a message where like, Mother's Day is kind of like the introduction, but it really sets up for, like, everybody. So this is really a message for everyone here. If you're wondering, how does God provide for me in the wilderness? How can I trust him in the wilderness? What do I do when it's, when it's hard? What do I do when I'm hungry? This message is for you, and that is my, my, my hope and my prayer here. So I just want to open up in a word of prayer before we get into this. Dear Heavenly Father, I just thank you, Lord, so much for your word, and I thank you so much for your kindness and for your goodness toward us um, You are absolutely amazing, Lord, and you are absolutely uh, incredible and patient. I thank you for sustaining me through this week as I was just preparing this message and just all the things that are happening that you just kept me going. Um, And Lord, I pray for everyone here. I pray for people where this is a a really happy and exciting day. I pray for people where this could be um, a difficult day for whatever reason, Lord. Um, And I pray that we would all be encouraged. I pray, Lord, that we would all be strengthened, mothers, women, men, children, everybody. And I ask, Father God, that you would use this message to uh, just continually soften our hearts and help us to trust you. And so bless these words in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Okay, so as I said before, we we are in Genesis chapter 16, and we're going to be flying through some verses here. So our story will start with a word, start with a Hebrew word, and that Hebrew word is midbar. So midbar is, is Hebrew for wilderness. And the first time this word occurs in the scriptures is in relation to the story of Hagar and her son Ishmael. And when they are in the wilderness and how God provided for them through that experience. So looking here at Genesis chapter 16, it opens up talking about Sarai and Abram. And so it says and notes here that Sarai, Abram's wife, bore him no children. And as we know, the story goes, unfortunately, uh, she couldn't have children up until this point. But she had an Egyptian maidservant whose name was Hagar. So Sarai says to Abraham, See now, the Lord has restrained me from bearing children. Please, go into my maid. Perhaps I shall obtain children by her. And Abram heeded the voice of Sarai. Then Sarai, Abram's wife, took Hagar, her maid, the Egyptian, and gave her to her husband, Abram, to be his wife, after Abram had dwelt ten years in the land of Canaan. So he went into Hagar, and she conceived. And when she saw that she had conceived, her mistress became despised in her eyes. All right. So, so right there, we see this, this setup, all right? And a lot of us are very familiar with the story of Abram, who becomes Abraham, right? He is the father of Israel. And we know that God had given him a promise. He was in his own territory, his own land, and the Lord basically told him, hey, get up, go to a country I'm going to tell you about, and I am going to make you into a great nation. I'm going to give you a promise, and all the people of the earth, the entire world is going to be blessed through you, through this promise. But, of course, as we know, there's one simple problem. Abraham and Sarah do not have children. And Sarah can't have children. So then there's this question of how is God going to provide for this, which leads us to Genesis 16. It has been a few years since God has made this promise. They still don't have any children. And so Sarai tells Abram, well, you know, I have one of my maidservants here, Hagar from Egypt. Um, I'm going to give her to you, and I want you to have children through her. And then what we'll do is that child will be considered a child between myself and you, and that will be our heir. That this is how God is going to fulfill the promise, right? And so what I want to highlight here is that there was a lot of frustration and confusion and abandonment that I'm sure Sarah is feeling, and I'm sure even Abraham too. He, he had faith, and we know the scriptures say that, but I'm sure there is also some struggle he felt as well. And so what we see in this situation is that, unfortunately, rather than, than taking hold of the promises of God, they start to try and figure out, okay, what is some way we can make this work for ourselves, all right? Like, I know God said we're going to have a son. How is this going to happen? Okay, may, maybe this is the way we can, we can do this. Um, and we see right now, right here, that this wilderness story actually starts off on, on, a, on a foot of failing to fully believe the promises of God. But we're going to see how this is actually a setup for God to display his providence and his provision in a really mighty way that goes on for, for centuries, really. So, so what happens here in verse 5 is that Sarai says to Abram, My wrong be upon you. I gave my maid into your embrace, and when she saw that she had conceived, I became despised in her eyes, the Lord's judge between you and me. So Abram said to Sarai, Indeed. Your maid is in your hand, do to her as you please. And when Sarai dealt harshly with her, she fled from her presence. So we see here that Abram feels like he's stuck between a rock and a hard place, and he says, Okay, just just do whatever you want with her. And so as a result, Sarai treats her harshly. There's conflict between these two women. And, and Hagar flees into the wilderness to escape this. So a very interesting thing about this uh, fleeing into the wilderness. So, so for those of you who don't know, I'm an engineer. So I really like math, or at least I kind of like it because it helps me create. So a lot of times when I'm into scriptures and I'm reading things, I like to dig into the data a little bit. You know, it helps me get a, a deeper understanding about what's going on um, in the story, right? So I said to myself, okay, if she flees into the wilderness, like. How would that journey be? Like, what what are the distances to expect and everything like that? So I did a little math, right? Um, Opened up nice uh, Google Maps here. And if you took, like, a straight line from where they were staying at, which was currently, um, at the time, Hebron, and most likely she was making a path back to Egypt, uh, the part that she had stopped at, which is the sure spring, as it says here in verse 7, that's about a 255-mile journey, just to give you an idea of what's going on here, all right? Um, so she, she, she traveled a lot. She traveled a lot, to say, say the least. Um, and you can imagine, she is out here in the wilderness. She is pregnant. She's in distress. And we have here that the Lord uh, meets her in a very special way as she's in the wilderness, And so it says that the angel of the Lord in verse 7 found her by a spring of water in the wilderness, by the spring on the way to a shore. And he said to her, Hagar, Sarai's maid, where have you come from and where are you going? She said, I'm fleeing from the presence of my mistress Sarai. And the angel of the Lord said to her, return to your mistress and submit yourself under her hand. Then the angel of the Lord said to her, I will multiply your descendants exceedingly so that they shall not be counted for multitude. And the angel of the Lord said to her, Behold, you are with child, and you shall bear a son. You shall call his name Ishmael, because the Lord has heard your affliction. He shall be a wild man. His hand shall be against every man, and every man's hand against him. And he shall dwell in the presence of all his brethren." Then she called the name of the Lord who spoke to her, you are the God who sees, which is El Roy. For she said, I have also seen him who sees me. Therefore the well was called Beer Lathai Roy. Observe it, it is between Kadesh and Bered. So Hagar bore Abram a son, and Abram named his son whom Hagar bore Ishmael. Abram was 86 years old when Hagar bore Ishmael to Abram. So I want to take a look here at this wilderness experience in how God met Hagar. And the first point I want to mention here is that God found her. Now, now, when we see that in the scriptures, does it mean God had lost sight of her and he's like, "Oh, Hagar, where'd you go?" What? what? Not something like that. No. But what the what the author is trying to communicate here? is God had a vested interest in looking for her. God was seeking her out in his heart. He said, I want to find her, I want to communicate with her, I want to connect with her. And that's what's happening right here. And then we see that God talks to her. And once again, he asks, Hagar, uh, where have you come from and where are you going? And we notice, this is God. We, we know he already knows this information. Right? You look in the Psalms, and it even says that, you know, the Lord knows every word and every thought that is on your heart before you even are aware of it. Right? So before you even thinking about what you want to eat for tomorrow, like, God already knows what it's going to be. Like, I don't even know what I want to eat for tomorrow, really. But God already knows what it is. Right? So, so God knows what's happening here. But why does he ask her? Because he invites her into communication. He talks with her. He's conversing with her. This is relationship. There's an exchange. And then next here, we see that God commands her. So after this discussion, after, after this interchange, God tells her what to do. And he says to return to your mistress. Submit yourself under her hand. Um, and that word submit right there in, in the Hebrew, it's anah, which means to humble oneself. And, and so right here, what God is doing is he's, he's actually lovingly instructing her. God knows the situation. He obviously has a plan for her, and he has a plan for Ishmael and for their descendants. Um, And so what God is calling her to do is to trust in his instruction. And I think that's really important because we have to remember that that the Lord um, is a Lord who gives us instruction um, out of his wisdom and out of his love. He, God God is not merely a God of, of doctrine and theology, and I know in our circles we, we can be very big on that, but he's also a God of practicality. Um, in youth group, we, we're going through the book of, um, not Philippians, um, actually yeah, no, of Philippians, and so right now one of the things that we're talking about is um, practical advice with one of our lessons, and so I think it's so important for us as believers to to recognize the ways in which God is calling us to practically do something. Um, a lot of times, I, I'm able to recognize the voice of the Lord in my own life when he's instructing me on something, because it'll, it'll be specific. Um, God wants you to know his will. God wants you to know the things that he requires of you. And practicality is very necessary. If Think about it. If you had a friend, for instance, and and you wanted advice on let's say, working out, right? Like, I, I was in the gym this past week, and, and you were like, okay, you know, I have this goal here, and I'm trying to figure out what can I do to reach this physical goal that I have in the gym. And the friend's just like, well, oh man, just, like, lift the weights, you know, just try your very best, and, and it'll work out. Yeah. Is that very practical advice? Is it very specific? No, not helpful at all. Um, but now if the same friend said, hey, when you go, like, you, you want to make sure that you really squeeze at the top of your, your bicep curl, you know, hold it for a couple seconds or so, and then you want to go down for another five seconds, really really work out the muscle, work out all those fibers there. Then you kind of get an idea, okay, here are some practical steps with, with what I need to do, right? So, so God gives her something practical to follow up on. But then also here, the last point is that God promises to her, Right? So God doesn't merely tell her all of these things to do. God isn't simply talking to her idly, but he makes a promise to her, and he tells her what the future of her son is going to be. He tells her, um, essentially, you're going to be okay. That's what he's saying, right? You will be fine. You will survive this. And so these are all things here that, for us as believers, we can also take as well, and how God communicates to us when we are in the wilderness. So now... Let's fast forward to chapter 21. We're going to be moving a few years forward in the timeline here. So Ishmael is born, and he is not a baby at this point. Um, he's actually about 13 or 14 years old, all right? So, so he's growing up. Uh, he is Abraham's only child, his only son. So I'm sure right now in the tribe and in, in the group that they have there, uh, he has a lot of attention. And he is in a place of esteem, so to speak, right? Because right now, he is the only son of Abraham, and he is the firstborn. But things are, are changing. So we see here in verse 21 that it says, The Lord visited Sarah as he had said, and the Lord did for Sarah as he had spoken. So here, God fulfills his promise. Shortly after this, what actually happened was that the Lord went and visited Abraham and Sarah and reiterated his promise, You guys will have a son. It's not going to be through another man. It's not going to be through another woman. It will be through Abraham and Sarah. And as a matter of fact, to confirm that, I will establish a covenant with you. And so there's this kind of scene in this ritual where God actually establishes a covenant with Abraham, therefore binding himself to that promise. And here in chapter 21, we see that promise fulfilled. All right, so so Isaac is born. And Abraham circumcises Isaac when he was eight days old, as we see in verse 4. And Abraham was a hundred years old when his son Isaac was born to him. And Sarah said, God has made me laugh, and all who hear will laugh with me. She also said, Who would have said to Abraham that Sarah would nurse children? For I have borne him a son in his old age. And so we see here uh, Sarah, you know, her, her desire for motherhood and this, this longing here is met. And God provides for her in a very powerful way. Um, but then it leads to conflict, right? So in verse 8, it says, So the child grew and was weaned, and Abraham made a great feast on the same day that Isaac was weaned. And Sarah saw the son of Hagar, the Egyptian, whom she had born to Abraham, scoffing. Therefore she said to Abraham, Cast out this bondwoman and her son, for the son of this bondwoman shall not be heir with my son, namely Isaac. So I tried to figure out what would be a great analogy to emphasize the displeasure of this moment. Um, Let's add some historical context here, okay? So having a feast or celebration when a child was weaned was a a regular thing um, in the ancient culture. And it was a celebration that the child essentially had moved past the point when he was dependent solely on his mother for sustenance. He could now have food and stuff like that. So it was a celebration of growing and maturing, but also survival, right? So this, this was a very uh, important celebration. And and the analogy, at least the best one that I could think of, that could emphasize the severity of Ishmael scoffing at Isaac in the situation. Uh, uh, imagine if you're at a wedding, right, and and you know this couple here, you know, they've gone through so much, and God has finally brought them together, and 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 they're, you know, going to be married, and it's a great, wonderful time. And imagine someone stands up, like right in the middle of the ceremony, and just starts like insulting the bride, like saying like all this like really horrible stuff. Like everyone would be horrified, right? You you would be absolutely like, oh my gosh. So what what's happening here? It's kind of like that. It's kind of like that. It's, it's really bad what Ishmael's doing here. Um, and so Sarah sees that, and she says, that's it. I want them out. I don't care what happens to them. I want them gone. Kick them out. She's not going to be around me, and her son's not going to share in, my inher- in the inheritance with Isaac. They're gone. And, and once again, as I was saying before, you see uh, uh, um, a, a, lot of, a lot of fear You know, a lot of sin, a lot of selfishness, a lot of responding in the wrong ways to things. Um, And by extension, even though it says Ishmael was scoffing, I'm pretty sure Hagar also had something to do with this as well, just judging by the context and the previous conflicts that they had. And and we see here that this is a a situation where two mothers, both of them in their own ways, are struggling to trust the promises of God, right? If Hagar's trusting God, she, she would not be allowing this contempt towards Sarah. You know, she would understand, okay, like, God will take care of me. He will take care of my son. And, and if Sarah's trusting the promises of God, she wouldn't be reacting so harshly to Hagar because she would understand, like, I don't have to force my hand. I don't have to be harsh to her. God promised me something. It's going to come to pass. Right? So we see here there's, there's a lot of friction, and it's really unfortunate. Um, and so as a result, uh, Abraham is very distraught, but God tells him, listen, Listen to Sarah on this one. She said, send them away. Send them away. And so Abraham has faith and he, he listens to the Lord. And so once again, Hagar is in the wilderness for the second time, um, but this time with her 14-year-old son. And we see here later on in verse 21 that um, in verse 16, they had run out of water. Then she went and sat down across from him at a distance, about a bow shot away, for she said to herself, "Let me not see the death of the boy." So she sat opposite to him and lifted up her voice and wept, and God heard the voice of the lad, and the angel of the Lord and the angel of God called to Hagar out of heaven, and said to her, "What ails you, Hagar? Fear not, for God has heard the voice of the lad where he is. Arise, lift up the lad, and hold him with your hand, for I will make him a great nation." Then God opened her eyes, and she saw a well of water. And she went and filled the skin with water and gave the lad a drink. So God was with the lad, and he grew and dwelt in the wilderness and became an archer. And he dwelt in the wilderness of Paran, and his mother took a wife for him in the land of Egypt. So once again, the Lord meets her in this wilderness experience. And what we see here, and and this really struck me as I was reading this, is that In verse 16, we see that Hagar, she's crying, right? But we also note, too, that that in verse 17, Ishmael, 14-year-old Ishmael, is crying as well. And how do we know that? Well, it says, God heard the voice of the lad. And I said to myself, that's really interesting. I'm really curious why in this situation the writer chose to emphasize that God heard the voice of Ishmael as opposed to he heard the voice of Hagar. And this is what I got out of it. And I I believe this is really what the Spirit is trying to tell me is that God cared not simply about Hagar, but he cared about her son as well. You know, he he cared about the child and he cared about the love she had for the child. And so not only is he responding to her, but but God is specifically also responding to Ishmael in this moment. And we see his, his wonderful care and his provision and he reminds her of the promise that I'm going to make Ishmael a great nation and what does that imply? Well, it implies obviously that they're going to survive, but not simply that they're going to survive, but that they're going to thrive. Right? I mean, think practically of what it would take for like one person to become a great nation. I mean, you need land, You need food. You need resources. You need political power. You need military power. You need all this crazy stuff. You need a lot of time. You need to be able to fight against your enemies. You need to be able to establish something and have your area of influence grow. So God, I just want to emphasize this, God's not simply saying, Hagar, you're going to be all right. You're you're going to get by. No, this is a big promise. You guys are going to thrive. You're going to become a nation. Right? So so once again, in this wilderness experience, we see God coming and making a promise to her and saying, I'm going to take care of you. And in that same way, the Lord does the same thing for us, right? I will take care of you. You're not merely going to survive. I'm going to help you thrive. I'm going to give you everything that you need. And so the, um, the aftermath of this story here is that what happens, uh, what God said uh, comes true, and it happens. Uh, Ishmael, he, he grows up. He has his wife. He has 12 sons. Later on, we see in Genesis. And each of those 12 sons become a a patriarch of of one of the tribes of the Ishmaelites. And actually, what's very interesting, too, is that later on, Ishmael and Isaac, right, the two brothers who were in conflict, they actually come back together to bury Abraham later on in Genesis. Um, And Ishmael lives to be 137 years old. So everything that God said came to pass, right? So now... We're going to take a turn as we get to the last part of, of this message here. And we're going to focus on uh, Isaac's descendants now, right? So we focus on the story of Ishmael. We focus on Hagar, their experience in the wilderness. Now we're going to look at the children of Israel, Isaac's descendants. And they also have a wilderness experience as well too. So the second time, our, our word, right, Midbar, which means wilderness in Hebrew. The second time this word appears in a really big way is dealing with the children of Israel and their experience in the wilderness. So um, let's uh, we're going to skip through Exodus a little bit, and then we're going to land in Numbers. But in Exodus, we see that uh, many years have passed, all right? Um, about 400 years or so from, um, from Jacob. And what has happened is Israel has now become a great nation, right? Similarly, as, as God blessed Ishmael, and they became a great nation, God blessed Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and now their descendants, the children of Israel, have become a great nation, and they're in Egypt, and they're oppressed, by this evil king, Pharaoh, who is the ruler of the land, and God miraculously frees his people. Now, what's very interesting about the, um, the context of how Israel got sent into the wilderness is that for them, at first... It was supposed to be strictly a journey to the promised land. So remember, once again, God gave Abraham a promise. This whole idea of this wilderness experience and being provided for in the wilderness starts with Abraham. All right, so he gives Abraham a promise you're going to have a great nation. I'm going to give you all this land for this nation. And so centuries later, when Abraham's descendants are numerous, God says it's time to come up out of Egypt. Head back to where your ancestors were. It's time to reclaim that land. So they were going back into the wilderness, back into Midbar, to claim this promise. Um, But things don't go as well as they should have gone. But God was still faithful, and we're going to look at that briefly, right? So in Exodus chapter 15, uh, after Israel leaves Egypt, uh, there is a lot of complaining that starts here. And we're going to breeze very quickly through this, so you don't necessarily have to turn to all of this. But if you're taking notes, you can write them down. But in Exodus 15, uh, we see Israel complaining about lack of water in the wilderness. And so God doesn't say anything, as far as the text shows, about uh, their complaining. What he simply does is there's a spring nearby. He tells Moses, hey, like, take this piece of wood and toss it into the spring because the water was, was um, poisonous. It wasn't good for drinking. And miraculously the spring becomes uh, drinkable uh, for the people, and so he provides water for them there. Then in Exodus 16, the people are hungry, and then their complaining gets worse, right? So remember, they were in Egypt. They were oppressed. They, they were being tortured there with labor. And you want to know how bad the complaining got here? They start to say stuff like, you know what? <sighs> I wish God killed us back in Egypt. Why did he bring us out here? Why did he bring us into the wilderness just for us to go hungry, just for us to have uh, well, nothing, for us to starve? In Egypt, at least we had shelter, at least we had food, at least we had all of these things. Why did he even bring us out here? You know, I just wish God killed us back in Egypt. That's what they said. That's what they said. After seeing all the ways in which God provided them, that's pretty bad, Right? Um, And yet, God doesn't say anything. And and instead, what he does in Exodus 16 is he gives them quail later on that evening. And then for the rest of the time afterwards, that's when he started the manna that would come in the morning. And the people would gather it and they would bake it into bread and different loaves and things like that. Um, And then in Exodus 17, the people complain about water again. And then this time, they're practically ready to stone Moses. And so God provides water from a rock. Miraculously, he tells Moses, hey, there's a rock nearby. Strike it and I'm going to give them water. And then on top of that, in verse 17, later on, the Amalekites, another uh, group of people there, go to attack Israel, and God miraculously uh, delivers them and gives them victory to overpower their enemies there. So here's where things start to reach a breaking point. Um, Israel, in Exodus 19, they meet God at Mount Sinai in their journey in the wilderness, Right? And so here on Mount Sinai, God tells Moses, prepare the people. I'm going to meet with them the next day, and we're going to establish a covenant, basically an agreement, right? This is, this is going to be a, 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 a cultural, uh, legal, spiritual contract. Here's what I will do for you in the promises and purposes I have, and here's expectation, people, that I want you to fulfill. And so it is a crazy scene. They're there standing before the mountain. Um, There's lightning. There's fire. The glory of God is manifesting. And it's, it's really bright. And it's actually extremely intimidating. Like, imagine standing, like, right in front of... Uh, an exploding volcano or something like that. It's, it's, it's crazy, all right? Um, interesting details about that. Actually, too, if you read in Hebrews where it talks about the people standing before the mountain, you don't see it in, in uh, Exodus, but Moses actually made a comment, like, I'm shaking in my boots because it was so scary. And the people even said, hey, Moses, just like, you talk to God and then tell us what God said because when God speaks, it's way too scary. Because the scriptures even say, like, when God spoke, like, things would shake, Like, that's how much power was coming out of that moment, right? Um, And so what we see is that Moses goes up to the mountain to receive the law from God. So God's providing, um, once again, these commandments. Here's how I want you to be in the wilderness. And while he's doing that, and here's the insane thing about it, okay? Think about all the things that the Lord has done for them up to this point. Think about how God is manifesting his glory right now while Moses is on the mountain, the people get nervous, their faith falters, and they say, you know what? Moses has been gone a long time because he was up there for about 40 days and 40 nights. They say, I don't know what happened to him, and I don't know, quite frankly, what happened to God. So you know what? Let's take our gold, let's melt it, we'll make a golden calf, and we'll worship it. And we'll say, this is what brought us out of Egypt. It's insanity, right? It's complete insanity. And the one thing that I never noticed until I studied this this deeply here is this is when God, and rightfully so, it's sad, but rightfully so, this is when God starts to say, okay, enough is enough, right? I I kind of always had it a little blurred in my head where I thought earlier in Exodus when they were complaining, God was still punishing them. But no, God actually didn't say a word. Every time they complained, God's like, okay, here you go. Another complaint, okay, here you go. Another complaint, okay, here you go. But at this point, when they start engaging in idolatry, that's when God says, okay, enough's enough, Enough is enough, right? And so we we know how that goes. We know that God says to Moses, "Look, I'm going to get rid of this people because they're stubborn and they're just not listening to me, no matter what I do." And Moses prays for them, and so the nation as a whole is spared. But unfortunately, some of them do jo- die as a result of God's judgment, and and we see this whole idea of stubbornness and complaining in the wilderness continuing with Israel, and and it's tough and it's and it's sad. But the thing that I want to point out here is despite their complaints and despite their mistakes, despite their sin, God's still providing for them in the wilderness. He hasn't let go of his people. So then the last part here with this wilderness experience before Israel eventually does reach the promised land, and and like I said, we're moving. We're we're definitely moving fast, is uh, in Numbers um, 14, if you could turn there, and this is our, our last major place, but in Numbers 14, some more time has passed, and Israel has been traveling, and, and they've been facing different things, but God has still been providing for them. Um, and he's still been faithful in the wilderness. And so they finally reach the border of where they need to enter. And the people say to Moses, I think we should send spies into the land. Let's, let's get some, some information. Let's get some data on the way things are. And then from there, we can make you know, some decisions. And Moses says, you know what? I think that's a good idea. So he sends 12 spies, right? And we know how the song goes, you know, 12 men went to spy in Cain and 10 were bad and two were good. We a lot of us grew up with that Sunday school song. Um, so ten of the spies, ten of the spies gave a bad report of the land. They said, look, like the people there, they're giants. They have all these resources. We can't beat them. This doesn't make sense, right? So they they're doubting the promises of God. But then two people, Caleb and Joshua, come back and they say, No, we can take the land. But unfortunately, the report of the two, the two bad spies compromised the faith of the people. And so they blatantly refused to enter the land. And then on top of that, what they said is, hey, you know what we're going to do? Um, we're really mad. Moses and God failed us. Let's stone Moses, find another leader. We're going to go back to Egypt. So we're going to kill our current leader, and we're going to go back to the place where we were slaves. Wow. Right? And so as a result, what the Lord told them was that, you know, because you've done this and because you're stubborn, what's going to happen is for every day the spies were out there, they're out there for 40 days, for every day you will spend one year in the wilderness wandering until the adults in that group and and the specific metric was those 20 years and older, until all that group has passed away, you guys will not enter. And so they have to go back into the wilderness and stay there for another 40 years as a result of their disobedience. Um, and, and as the scriptures go, as we read through Numbers, despite their disobedience, God amazingly continues to provide, and he continues to sustain them, and he continues to uplift them. Um, there was more complaining. Uh, they faced several battles. They faced fighting the, the, one of the kings of the uh, Canaanites. They faced fighting an Amorite king fighting uh, some of the Midianite kings. And every single time, God gave them the victory. This is a small, nomadic group of people, right? That they, they don't have an established territory. Fighting up against other kingdoms who've been established in the land, and they are beating them. Like, that's supernatural. That was God's provision, his providence right there. And even Moses, in his last words to the people, in Deuteronomy, he tells them as a summary and, and this, in, in Deuteronomy chapter 8 and, verse, and chapter 32, this is 40 years later when the people are finally ready to enter the land and Moses is giving his last words saying, hey, like, this is a summary of everything you guys went through. He says, look at God's faithfulness. You know, he tells them um, in chapter 8 that your clothing didn't even wear out on you and your feet didn't swell these 40 years. So even though they're in the midst of a, of a punishment, God still sustained them, even supernaturally. And he, And he goes through, and he has like these wonderful poems where he talks about how God provided for them, and in Deuteronomy 32:10 through 12, he says, "He, being the Lord, found him being Israel, in a desert land and in the wasteland, a howling wilderness. He encircled him, He instructed him. He kept him as the apple of his eye, as an eagle stirs up its nest, hovers over its young, spreading its wings, taking them up, carrying them on its wings. So the Lord led him. And so there's this huge testimony, and, and this is the reason why I want to, to show this, right? Is that despite all of these mistakes, God was still fiercely for Israel, right? And, and so how does this relate to us as we think about all of these things? Well, God, uh, he gave them produce. And I have this list here with a bunch of words that begin with P. It kind of goes with the whole theme of provision. But I just want to go through this briefly. God gave them produce. He gave them products right? He gave them the resources that we need. And for us as believers, when we think about God's provision, God also tells us he's going to provide for our needs. Um, One of my favorite uh, verses, the one in in Matthew chapter 6, verses 25 through 34, where it talks about not to worry, right? God provides needs for us. Instead of worrying, we need to seek the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added unto us. Um, God gave them this is a, another little nerdy engineering word, but God gave them protocols, right? He, he gave them commandments. He gave them instructions. He gave them wisdom to follow while they were in the wilderness. And for us as believers, we have scripture. We have Jesus, who is the word, the ultimate revelation of the Lord. Um, and we're in a very unique spot because we actually have the full canon of the, of the scripture. I just want to I, I just highlight that. Do you understand, like, the privileged position we have, previous Christians, the the, the Israelites, you know, before Jesus came, all that, they didn't have the full Bible as we know it. They didn't have the full canon of Scripture. So we actually have a lot more than they ever did. They had to work with less, all right? So we have instructions from the Lord. They had protection from God. They had power from God. And for us as believers as well too, we have power. And one of the things I definitely want to encourage you is look up these things in the scripture. There's so many verses that talk about the power that we have. Um, Philippians 4.13, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. 2 Peter 1.3 talks about that we have divine power for godliness. Actually, a really interesting thing too in 2 Peter, it says that God's intention is for us to be partakers of his divine nature, right? That's pretty amazing. James 5 talks about the fact that uh, the prayer of a righteous man is powerful and effective. We, we as believers have power, and we have to believe that. We, we really have to believe that, church. We have power. Um, God showed patience. Um, I think that one is pretty self-explanatory after everything we just went through. Um, and God extends the same patience to us. If you confess your sins before him, he's faithful and just to forgive you of your sins and cleanse you from all unrighteousness. And the last two here that really, really shook me is that God also gave them in the wilderness, he gave them the provision of his presence and he gave them the provision of his purpose. And that's really, really special right there. Moses had an incredible encounter with the Lord where when Israel had disobeyed, God said, I'm not coming with you guys anymore. And Moses said, if you don't go with us, we're not gonna make it. We need your presence. And God said, okay, well, since you've pleased me and you found grace in my sight, my presence will go forth with you. And I, I, I almost like want to picture this scene in my head. And I, the way I've always viewed this, because it's weird. Like God is saying, I'm going to go with you. And then out of nowhere, Moses is like, show me your glory. And I think Moses must have been like so overwhelmed with the moment. And like he was absorbing so much of the presence and the energy and the magnificence of God. He's just like, show me more. Show me more. And God does a very interesting thing. God tells him, all right, I'm going to put you in the cleft of this rock. I'm going to cover you with my hand because you can't see my face. And live, like, my glory is too powerful, but you're going to see my back. But he also does another thing. And he talks and tells something that's essential to his nature. And he talks about the fact that he's merciful, he's kind, he's loving. He holds loving kindness for thousands of generations. But he doesn't acquit the guilty of their sin. Of course, and as we know from other scripture, unless if they repent... So God reveals an essential part of his nature and a part of his presence. And what I want to emphasize with you guys is that if anyone here is experiencing a a wilderness situation in your life, we all are. I have my own wilderness situations. I can tell you right now, every time I have to preach somewhere, I feel like it's like the wilderness situation pops up in my life. I'm not joking when I say that. Um, The last two weeks have been hectic on multiple levels. But if you're struggling right now, I want to let you know that God promises his presence. You're not alone. You're not alone. And you need to spend time absorbing that. You need to spend time getting into his presence. And I'm preaching to myself, too, because it's very easy for me to forget that when I'm struggling. And then the last part is purpose. God gave Israel a purpose, even when when they were in the wilderness. They were to be a nation of, of kings and priests. They were supposed to reveal the glory to God. They were also the people that the Messiah came through, right? And, and for us as believers, the scriptures say that we are God's chosen people. God has a purpose for everyone who makes the choice to put their faith in, in the Lord Jesus Christ. God wants you to make, he wants you to become like him. He wants to convert you to become like the image of Christ. And the scriptures say that Jesus is the image of the invisible God. So I want to encourage you guys with all of these things. And I know it was a lot, and there's definitely, like I said, it was it was a whirlwind tour, and I hope I was as faithful as I could have been to everything here. But God provides in the wilderness. Don't doubt that. Don't doubt it. And once again, I'm speaking to myself when I say this. I don't want to seem like I'm some super Christian. You know, it's very easy for me to forget when I'm going through a hard time. It's very easy for me to say. God, like, I just don't know where you are. I don't know what's going on. But remember his provision in the wilderness in the same way that he was faithful for these two mothers, right, for Sarah and Hagar, in the same way he was faithful for Israel despite their disobedience, same way he's, he's working all these purposes, he is faithful for you. God is for you. If God is for you, who can be against you? And so I, I hope that you take that that you spend time meditating on this, spend time praying about it, and let it change your life. And if you don't know God, put your faith in him today because these are the promises that he has for you. Let's close in prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, I just want to thank you, Lord, for this time, and I want to thank you um, once again for your provision. I thank you that in the scriptures you have examples for us that are not perfect, and that's very reassuring, Lord, because we are not perfect. And if we got the inclination that perfection was necessary to receive your provision that would be really tough um but lord you are faithful you're faithful even when when we mess up i'm so thankful for that and i pray lord that everyone here would be encouraged once again i don't know um the the joys and the pains in everyone's lives here but i pray that they would hold on to you that they would not let go of jesus i pray for people who may not know you lord that um their hardness would just be broken down. I pray that they would accept Christ, that they would understand that um, without a Savior, there there is nothing really in light of eternity, Lord. Uh, There's just separation from you. There is hell. And you don't desire that anyone should perish, Lord. You desire to provide. um, You desire to care. You desire to show your love. And so I just thank you for this, and I pray that we'd be encouraged today as we spend time with our families. In Jesus' name, amen.